the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. Science is uncooperative when it comes to projected timelines. Some breakthroughs in science happen in the blink of an eye when a scientist suddenly realizes how a biological process actually works, and another scientist, hearing of the insight, makes a leap of his or her own, and then another scientist does as well. These successive related insights can fall like a row of dominoes, clicking one against the other, tick, 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 tick. We might hear a reference to decades of work which enabled that first insight to happen and the slow, slow, careful pace of science, but we are more likely to be aware of the breakthroughs. This, of course, messes with our expectations of science. Such was the breakthrough of Dolly the Sheep in 1996, cloned from a single cell, taken from the mammary glands of a mature adult female sheep. It portended great things, with many predictions. What shall be cloned next? Can't they clone a part of me to regenerate replacement parts? Can they clone me? And the list went on. But the suddenly famous Sir Ian Wilmot became the director of the Scottish Centre for Regenerative Medicine at the University of Edinburgh and continued to steadily lead his group of scientists in the field of regenerative medicine. With Dr. Wilmot's recent passing, we are replaying our Biotechnation interview, which aired in 2007, recognizing the 10th anniversary of Dolly's birth. David Ewing Duncan, at the time our correspondent for Bioissue of the Week, and I were able to sit down and speak with Dr. Wilmot about the nature of science, what they had learned since Dolly, and then Frosty, the first calf born from a frozen embryo and how predictions about the pace of scientific progress don't always match up with reality. I think we've made uh, good progress in some areas so that using the technique to make uh, precise genetic changes in animals, that's, that's been done and is in, in use. And uh, that was actually our original objective when we started the project four or five years before Dolly was, uh, was born. I think the, the area where there's, there's, it's disappointing that there isn't more progress is in producing cells from cloned human embryos to study disease. The idea for genetic change that was discussed a lot 10 years ago was to modify pigs so that their organs would be more suitable for transplant into, into people. And two groups working here in, in the States have achieved that. And, and one of them published data a year or so ago to show that if you put pig hearts into baboons to, to assess their functioning using non-human primates, they did survive very much longer. That's, that's kind of the good news, uh, very much longer than they would have done without the genetic change. The bad news is that that much longer was still only about 10 weeks. So it's, it's still not near to a clinical application, but it's, it was a very significant improvement. If you put regular pig tissue into a primate, it would be destroyed in minutes. So 10, 10 weeks is, you know, a huge difference. Um, but it's, it's still a long way away from clinical use. So, I mean, I think there is still a huge need for organs. You know, if you think of... Uh, the number of people that die each year before a heart or a liver or a kidney becomes available from a human donor. If people can make this work, it, w it would still be really useful. Uh, the thing which is disappointing is cells from cloned human embryos, that as far as we know, there are no stem cell lines produced in this way, despite unpublished work going on in a number of different labs around the world. And, and this, we, we'd always felt, could be even more important. Um, if, if you have somebody who has inherited a disease like, let's say, ALS, 
and you take a, a cell from them and use that to make an embryo through our procedure, that embryo would have the inherited characteristics of that person. Um, if you then produce stem cell lines from that embryo and study them, you're, you're looking at cells which are, let's say, roughly equivalent to those in that patient at the, at the beginning of their life. And so for the first time, people would have the opportunity to study the changes in those cells as they began to go wrong and to, and to go sick. The whole aim of doing this is not to replace the damaged cells, but to study them, to find out what goes wrong, and then to set up a high-throughput drug screen, looking for a molecule which is able to prevent those uh, degenerations. You know, if, you, if you think of the contrast, if we can identify a pill that people can pop, that would be so easy to do. You'd be able to spread it worldwide to the poor parts of the world as well as to the developed parts of the world. And it would be a huge step forward for patients who, who suddenly are told they have this disease but now are told that this medicine will prevent the change. If you contrast that with the idea of being able to replace the cells, which ultimately we want, might want to do, that the motor neurons that die in ALS, you know, some of them extraordinarily long, they go from the spine down to your toes uh, to control movement. So the challenge to do that is huge. That's why uh, the group, which um, includes Chris Shaw, who was a clinician in London, uh, the group have taken the view that it's much more realistic to think of trying to get a small molecule medicine than it is to go for cell therapy in the first instance. That's why it's very disappointing that so far there are no cell lines produced from cloned embryos. Now, is this precisely the scandal that came from South Korea that they had thought they had taken mm -hmm. the, the cells of, of patients with yep. particular degenerative diseases yep. and cloned their cell lines but hadn't? That did give us a period of, of false hope. Um, we were one among many groups who went to Seoul to, to learn about uh, what Huang said he'd done and was actually seeking to collaborate with him because he seemed to be so far ahead to, as the way of getting cells as quickly as possible. Uh, and obviously we were bitterly disappointed when, when we discovered that the work was fraudulent. Did uh, you have any sense that something was wrong when no, you went there? No. You've used the word disappointment a few times. Mm. Um, is there something particularly inherent in, in trying to clone a human being? You've been successful with other, other mammals. What, what is the issue with that? It, it's possible. Um, it's beginning to look like that. That there are, The other thing to mention is that there are no cloned primates, despite the fact that a number of labs have been trying to, to clone rhesus monkeys and so on. There are a number of labs that say that they start pregnancy but have not had development due to term to get a, a, a live offspring. So you begin to wonder if there's something different about early development in primates, which means that if we just apply procedures developed in sheep or mice, that it, that it doesn't fit. And, and just to, to give you an illustration as to why that, that might really be the case, if you apply the sheep protocol without modification to the mice, uh, you won't get any offspring. You'll get uh, some early development, but they won't go all the way through to, to term. Um, so something just as simple as altering the time, you know, you put the nucleus into the egg, and then at some point you have to trigger the egg to resume development, uh, to activate it, as we would call it. Um, in, in the sheep, you do those two things together, and you'll get lambs. If, if you do that in the mouse, you will not get offspring. You have to put the nucleus in and then wait a while and then activate. We don't understand why. I should tell you that. We don't understand why. But but just a simple thing like that. So it may be that there's something different about early human development, early primate development, which we haven't yet identified, which is critical. And these things are so easy to describe afterwards once you've stumbled across them. But when you're looking at this present situation, you, you know, you have no idea whether this is it or not. Is this partly what you're working on right now? We, we aren't doing any human nuclear transfer now. Um, we had a license some time ago, but they're place-specific. So when I moved from Roslyn to the university, we lost it. Um, we will be putting in an application during this summer. Uh, there are a number of aspects of this which are being reviewed in Britain at the present time, and the expectation is that that process will be completed by the autumn, so we'd be hoping to start in the autumn. Which goes to the point that while 
stem cell line development is uh, approved and okay in the UK, yep. it's still very, very much regulated. So the idea yep. that you're just doing whatever you want over there is simply a misimpression. It certainly is. Um, the process is, I, I, I approve of regulation. I have to say that I think it's, this British system is a bit cumbersome. I mean, they, they aim to give a, a response in three months. And I don't think I know anybody who in this situation has had uh, that efficiency. I know the HFEA are trying hard to um, to speed up the process, but that's actually only part of it. I mean, you, you have to um, prepare your application, which of course is you know several pages long. You put in all of the CVs for your people and all this sort of thing. Um, some organisations, like Roslyn Institute, for example, have their own internal ethics committee, so you get clear through there. It goes to the HFEA and it's sent out to, to a scientific review, a clinical review, an ethical review. You get a chance to comment on those and then it goes to the licensing committee and it, it, it does take months. It typically would be more like six months. Well, you should try it here. Well, maybe, <laughs> in some cases, it's easier here because there are no, there are no regulations. Yeah, yeah, right. if, you yeah. get, if you can get private funding as opposed to government funding, it, there you go. Yeah. Well, in fact, Dr. Wilma, describe the process that Britain went through. I, I find this endlessly fascinating um, that while we were, we're still really debating whether we're going to have stem cells or not at the yep. federal level in some ways, um, President Bush recently threatened again to veto um, Congress, even lifting some of the restrictions on stem cell research. At the same time, we were, we're having this, this sort of debate in Britain. You went through a rather elaborate um, and intricate process, which has led you to be able to carry out this research, but, but we're Restricted, as you said. I think the, the, the difference really goes right back to the time of uh, developing IVF, in that what Britain did, and at that time it was, I think, probably Margaret Thatcher's government, um, was to set up a committee outside Parliament, which was chaired by a professional philosopher, Mary uh, Warnock, now Baroness Warnock. Um, but it's included one of the best developmental biologists in the world, Anne McLaren. Um, it included theologians, ethicists, lay people, doctors, and so on, so a broad representative group of people. And they, of course, didn't come to a, a unanimous view, but they, they came to a sort of majority view that, that, at that point, that human IVF should be allowed and that there should be certain regulations, and it set up the framework which became the, the HFEA. Um, when the stem cell area came along in practice, um, you know, shortly after that, uh, it was it was already clear that you could use embryo stem cells produced in this way for, for research. There was a framework there. When there was the idea of uh, introducing nuclear transfer, it was actually looked at by two groupings um, about five years ago now, I guess. Um, one was to bring together two existing groupings concerned with human genetics and uh, the HFEA. But then uh, the, the system, I don't know where exactly, decided that they weren't comfortable with that. So they set up another committee, which was actually chaired by the chief medical officer, uh, whose name is Donaldson, so it's known as the Donaldson Committee, um, that again looked at this whole process and, and regulations were changed to allow the production of, uh, of cloned embryos by, you know, by nuclear transfer uh, and setting up the regulatory system. I, I, I think that to, to, take, to, to have a representative group of people but to take them, if you like, out of the heat of the political arena is actually a good move uh, and, and uh, um, have, have said so many times. Unfortunately, we're tending to move in your direction a little bit in that there is now a public consultation going on. And what can happen there is that um, your individuals can, can send in comments and, and the what we could, let's call the pro-life lobby, um, you know, very active and very vociferous, send in lots of emails. People like myself, a member of a number of professional organisations, I, I have to say I initially didn't send anything in. The, the bodies that I belong to... Uh, 
sent in opinions to the Royal Society, the research councils and so on, uh, patient groups and so on. But that was a mistake. And I think it, we, we have to learn that it's very important that if there is this sort of public consultation, we have to take part and submit things, which, of course, I have now done. Well, what you're doing, though, to many people, even even secular people, is somewhat freakish. Yeah. You know, you were a minute ago Stay talking Stay away about, from me with yeah. your pig organs in my body, all right? <laughs> I mean, putting pig hearts in baboons and, and et cetera. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, those of us that are that follow this closely are, of course, used to hearing about this. But yep. uh, the lay public, is, as we yep. all like to call the general it Wouldn't be public. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, what you're doing is out there to a lot of people in, in, in sci-fi land. Yep. And, and opinion, uh, I must say this, that whenever anyone, and whether it's the general public, scientists, politicians, doesn't matter, whenever you have an opinion that is being expressed without really sitting down and understanding hmm. What's going on? And yep. sometimes it's hard to understand because it's science. Yep. That it's very dangerous. These yep. any any opinion without basic understanding. Absolutely. No, I fully agree. And of course, you know, we do spend quite a lot of time explaining what, what it is we we have in mind. And uh, I understand that even so, to some people, the idea of producing a cloned human embryo, let's say, uh, you know, is a deeply offensive idea. So, so the precise situation for, let's say, an embryo produced during IVF in Britain, is that the parents have, I think, um, two, three or four options that they can um, uh, donate the embryo to an, another couple. They can donate the embryo for research or our law, law in order to, if you like, um, organize things and tidy things up, says that after a period of time, the embryo must be destroyed. So those are the three things. Donate for fertility treatment, donate for, for science, for research, or, or it must be destroyed. And, and that has to be the choice of the the, the, uh, the parents. Which is the same here in the United States. We have over 400,000 frozen embryos yeah. out there right now. And that's what well, we're in a bit of a holding pattern here. We, I mean, yeah, we see we don't have that. Yeah, because we keep them. I mean, no one wants yeah. to destroy them. Yeah, uh, we see, I think five years, you could argue, is a bit short. But, but, but five years is what it is in, in the law at present time. But I think the principle of having a deadline is probably a good idea because it just makes life complicated for people. You know, what happens is that egg embryos can be in storage and where you've got a state health service, they may be, that may be being paid for by the health service and the couple may move. You know, so you can actually lose touch with them and, and so on. So, so you need some mechanism of tidying things up, of saying, well, okay, uh, we've looked for you, we can't find you, five years is up, and, and the embryo is destroyed. And responsibly, from a technology and science point of view, we don't know what's going to happen to those frozen embryos in 10, 20, 30 years' mm -hmm. time. We just don't know. Yep. And so when you don't know, yep. there's a level of responsibility. Well, we've got a bit of a crisis in this country because we keep accumulating them through the yep. IVF procedures, but yep. because of the ethical concerns about destroying embryos, they're yep. just being saved. Yeah. Let, let me take another way of trying to illustrate how we think about things at different stages of, of life um, by, by suggesting a little story. Um, ima imagine that um, I, I have grandchildren, sort of little uh, children, sort of three to seven years old. Suppose I've taken one of my grandchildren into an IVF lab uh, as, a, as a visitor and somebody has just produced, say, uh, eight superb fertilized human eggs. They're going to pop two into the into the mother to the hope of producing children, so there's still six, okay? But oops, before the uh, freezing procedure can be started, the fire alarm goes off, and we look around and the fire's down the corridor, so we, we can't get out. There's just a small window that we may be able to squeeze out of in, in order to get out. But unfortunately, you, you know, it's, it's just an, a window. It's not a proper fire escape. So you have a choice. I can either tuck my grandchild under my arm and climb out the window and pass her out to the... Uh, person outside, or I can take the dish of eggs, but you can't take both. 
Now, now, if we really think that an egg is equivalent to a child, you should take the dish because it's got six embryos in it. But I don't think I know anybody who would do that because we do subconsciously even, without really thinking about it, view different stages of human life as being different. And that child, there's no question in my mind, obviously my granddaughter, there's not a fraction of a second's hesitation. She's more valuable than those embryos. Ooh. Yeah, it's, well, it's, Ian, it's always we'll a tough one. We'll get email on that one. <laughs> They'll come down every which way. Well, the real question here is, when will there be the treatments? I mean, yep. as soon as yep. there's a major treatment, much yep. of this may go away. Okay, so, so and, and this may be disappointing because uh, there are people uh, I know here in San Francisco, I've known for a number of years, uh, who have an inherited disease and um, they would desperately like treatment and it's very disappointing that things take a, uh, take a while. Let, let's just sort of work it through that if people starting to do human nuclear transfer now to produce cell lines are successful, begin over two or three years to produce uh, embryo stem cell lines with the characteristics that we're interested in, then have to make them become the cells which are damaged in the disease, another year or two's work, before you then begin to find out what is the difference between them and healthy cells. So you could be talking five years, say, to get to the stage where you can say, OK, that's characteristic of cells with this particular disease, we can now set that up into a high-throughput screen. That in itself will take some, some work working up. And, and who knows then you know, how long it'll be before the, the machine puts in the compound, which is going to be the lucky one, which stops the change. But you've then, got, of course, got to go back to the beginning and go through all of the process of proving that medicine, test it through animals, uh, the safety testing in humans, before you even begin to think of, think of treating patients. So my guess is it's at least 10 years uh, before a treatment could come through this way. And that isn't the sort of news that people want to hear. So, so I think you know, there is a potential here to study inherited diseases like ALS, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, some forms of cancer, uh, sudden heart failure, psychiatric diseases. There are a huge range of inherited diseases. And if you listen to the list, there isn't an effective treatment to any of those. So, so in the long run, there may be real benefit if we can make this procedure work. But unfortunately, it would take a long time to come. So, Ian, are you still into sheep? No. Um, I, when I moved from the Rosen Institute, we stopped over a period of months doing that. Um, we do most of our experiments now in, in the mouse. It, it offers different experimental advantages. We know an awful lot more about genetics in the mouse. Uh, there are an awful lot of uh, the tools that we need to study gene function in the mouse, things like antibodies and probes for uh, analyzing gene expression. So we now use the mouse for our experiments. You can get much further ahead with that. You can do more quickly. Yeah, it also obviously has a, a much shorter generation interval. Uh, so that if you're actually breeding animals, it's it's much faster in the mouse. And you named Dolly after Dolly Parton. I was wondering, yeah. maybe one of these mice you could name after me. If it's a girl or if it's a boy, you could name it after David. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> David and Moira. <laughs> yeah. You think they'll get on? <laughs> they better not be That's rats. Frightening. How many, how many <laughs> copies will he make of those? Yeah, brothers and sisters. That's, yeah. right. That's in, right. In fact, Dr. Will, I have a question about that. I've, I've always been curious. In fact, my 12-year-old wanted to know, uh, if you were able to clone a human being, or let's say clone a pet, yeah. um, are you going to get an exact replica of that pet? No, no, you're not, and that's a very important point. Um, I mean, we have a, a dog, a small uh, Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, who has a particular personality, and you know, we've had her, she's about 12 years old now, a very long time. But you, you have to understand that if you were to clone her uh, and, and make a genetically identical copy, she would be brought up in different circumstances, you would treat her differently, and she would acquire a different personality. Um, she would have a different experience in the womb, even. Yeah, and she even to impact upon 
the I mean, the, these cavaliers have different coat colors, so bits of black and ginger and, and white. That precise pattern would be different because it depends on multiplication and, and movement of the cells during a, a certain stages of development. And obviously, it would never be exactly the same. That's why identical human twins are not absolutely identical. They're not? No, I mean, if you look at them, I mean, they've got variation in facial features and, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, actually, if you get down to the precision, yeah. they're not identical because yeah. once they've split... Genetically identical, but... But they're not right. physically identical. Physically identical because yeah. they start to develop and separate and divide on the They own. may have a different position. Well, they will have a different position in the womb, which may, you know, feed them slightly differently. The pressures and so on on them may be, may be different. So the little Moira mouse yep. is not going to be just like Moira. Oh, there's not going to be any of my genes in this mouse, is there? Nope. God help that mouse. <laughs> you are listening to Tech Nation. David Ewing Duncan and I have been speaking with Sir Ian Wilmot, the embryologist and director of the Scottish Center for Regenerative Medicine. Well, let me ask one more thing here, which um, as we move forward, uh, you're talking about this research being years off. Um, Does it worry you that there's been so much talk, so much hype, frankly, with some of the politicalization of this in all directions, Uh, money being thrown around here in California. You know, we've got our $3 billion stem cell initiative, which I guess will finally get over the legal hurdles here in the next few months. Uh, The federal government and our federal government at some point will kick in. Do you worry, given that this research is still very youthful, it's in its early stages, that people uh, will want those cures faster than you're able to provide them? Yes, we do. We really do worry about that. I think it's easy to understand how it happens, that uh, research workers are optimists. You have to be to, to do this line of work. And we always, almost always, would be asked, you know, how long will it be? And, and you, there's a tendency to be careless and to give a, an answer of a short period. And we are worried that there will be a, a backlash. And I think it's important that under, people understand that this sort of thing... Um, you know, does evolve almost over a long period of time. And you can illustrate that if you look back at... Let, let's say you look back at um, development of antibiotics, which is not an area I know a great deal about. But, you know, there were some things which were being used for decades earlier in the, the um, uh, 20th century. And then people stumbled across penicillin, and that led to sort of a blossoming in a particular area and so on. So if you look back over the history, you'd find the same thing, that things tend to come through over a long period of time. And people are still looking for new antibiotics. If you go even further back and think of immunization, you know, a, a fortuitous discovery where people realized that milkmaids who were getting cowpox uh, um, exposure became immune to smallpox, and some people began to work on that. 150, 200 years later, people are still coming up with different strategies for immunization. So we have to expect that to happen with stem cell research. And there's still ethical dilemmas in some cases with some of the, the immunizations and yep. vaccines and, and others. And unfortunately, new knowledge d- does tend to produce these sort of situations, and, and we have to accept that. And uh, it's up to the people. I think it's important for the people involved in this research to explain what the opportunities are and to help uh, make a decision as to you know where exactly to draw a line. Two decades before Dolly... You did Frosty, first birth of a calf from a frozen embryo. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of objection to doing animals with frozen embryo, is there? No, oh, but the, it's, I mean, you couldn't pretend that it was caused as much um, concern as, as Dolly did, but, but um, it was still a media event. Dolly's birth was filmed by, I think it was a Dutch TV crew for Eurovision, and the day it was announced, I was whisked across to a BBC studio for for interviews and so on. So looking back to that sort of time, though, it's uh, 1973, uh, and Frosty was born. Um, 
it, it, it illustrates the kind of thing that happens to, to knowledge, it seems to me, that something comes along like that, whether it's freezing semen or whatever it is, IVF babies, and there's a period of sort of anxiety. And then again, over a period of years, that's the uh, general acceptance, not universal, of course, but general acceptance of something new. And, and then the problem is that people take it for granted. And the reason why that I, I describe that as a problem is that um, people don't understand that that came from basic research and that there's an awful lot more still to come from basic research. You know, it's my belief that there's still more to come from biomedical research than has ever happened in the past. Now, if you think of what we take for granted by way of, let's say, immunization, diet, uh, you know, the need to control infections by cleanliness and sterilization and all of these sorts of things before you get into the high-tech things like antibiotics, surgery, IVF and all of the different things. Now, I, I believe that if you, if you think of things coming from the Genome Project, from stem cells, um, nanotechnologies and things like that, I still think that there's still more to come. So, so I sometimes get impatient that people slow things down. You, you know, okay, so you 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 see somebody, let's say um, a former colleague has MS, somebody who we worked together for fifteen years or so, sitting one another with with the animal experimentation. She's now confined to a wheelchair with a different neurodegenerative disease. I sometimes get impatient that we don't see this opportunity more and say, well, come on, guys, let's really get into this and see what we can do to develop treatments for these diseases. Diseases. Many of our listeners are going to develop, you know, degenerative diseases of this kind. The proportion will increase as we as we live longer and, and deal with some of the other issues. And, and I just think that there is so much more to come that, that that we should be more positive and more optimistic about it. I do have to ask, Dr. Wilmot, is there somebody out there you think trying to clone a human being? Well, there are reports from Cyprus. Uh, Zavos, who uh, is from the States, or spent some time in the States, he's not originally a citizen here. Um, this is a geneticist he, from the U.S., yeah, right? Yeah, he, he's Dr. claimed Zavos, yes. to have worked with uh, human embryos. Um, but unless he's figured out that secret with the mammals. It won't work. It won't work. Yeah. The worrying thing, that what we've always said about this, you know, apart from any other ethical concerns, is that it's still true to say that the, at the present time, uh, mammalian cloning is an error-prone process so that the most likely outcome would be late abortions, the birth of de dead children or of children uh, with some serious uh, handicap uh, because of the cloning process. You know, just to give you an example, in our research to, to make genetic changes in, in sheep, we produced a lamb which was big and strong. It was normal birth weight. It ran around, ate a lot and all this sort of thing. Um, but it had a, a problem with the lungs, which meant that it panted all the time. It hyperventilated, and uh, just even if it was resting. Uh, so we consulted all the vets we could. We went to the children's hospital and consulted and so on. And after about 10 or 12 days, when we found we couldn't correct it, we decided it was kind of to end the animal's life and to then look and see what was the problem, to learn from it, which is how we know about the abnormality in the lungs. Now... What are you going to do if you have a child that's born with that sort of circumstance? And I think it would be very difficult to, to detect it whilst the fetus was in the in the womb. So, 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 you know, that apart from anything else, should stop people from attempting to clone children at the present time. There was a portion of the population worldwide, for mm. various reasons, mm. who were just shocked and abhorred at Dolly. Yep, yep. And there was a great backlash at the time from those from those sectors. Yep. Do you still feel that today? Has that died down at all? Well, I think even the interest in human reproductive cloning has died down. But, um, I, I don't know why. 
I, it could be because people are concentrating on the cells from cloned human embryos application. But but it's uh, there's a lot less interest, both from the public and from you know interviews uh, about this particular issue. You probably need to have one. I mean, if if yeah. one emerges, but I mean, you remember the the hoax of the the yeah. Raleigh Raelians? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Right, Raul or whatever. Yeah. But the... but that's just it. It's like what I like about this conversation for the radio is that the next time somebody tries to pull a hoax, you say, "Well, wait a minute. Have you fi- have you figured out the mammal mm. problem? Yeah. <laughs> and if you yeah. haven't, why yeah. are we even talking to you?" Um, it may be that they're doing some research in this direction, and um, there will always be people who, who would wish to use the, the technique, um, and so they can get money money for it. But uh, I don't know why, but why do I have the sense that you're going to be back in the public eye with something before your career is over? Well, maybe. Um, hopefully a good thing. I think it will be. <laughs> and it, I mean, if, if we can contribute to producing cells so that we can understand disease, I would be really pleased, I have to say. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Come back, see us anytime. Thank you very much for asking. Thank you, Ian. Take care. This 2007 Biotechnation interview honors Sir Ian Wilmot, who recently passed. At the time of this interview, Dr. Wilmot was the director of the Scottish Center for Regenerative Medicine and leader of the scientific team, which 10 years earlier had cloned Dolly the sheep from a single cell in the mammary glands of a mature female adult sheep. David Ewing Duncan continues on as an award-winning journalist. His most recent book, with J. Craig Venter, is The Voyage of the Sorcerer II, the expedition that unlocked the secrets of the ocean's microbiome. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.